Good morning, and welcome to Mount Tabor. My name is Tony Mendezabel. I'm one of the pastors here at Tabor. And I want to say hello to everybody who's watching on Facebook Live this morning. We're glad that you were joining us for worship today. We understand that you'll probably check us out online a couple of times before you ever come in person. We're good with that. We want you to know that if you have any questions about Tabor, why we do things the way we do, or about the Bible, you can feel free to send us a Facebook message and we will get back to you and work through those questions with you. Right? This is our second week in a sermon series studying the book of Colossians. And, and last week we laid the groundwork for it and we said that Paul wrote the book of Colossians for a very specific reason. It was to counteract external pressures. There were two forces that were vying for people's attention and adherence in Colossae. And the first group was the Judaizers. They wanted everybody to be Jewish. They said, you believe in Jesus? That's fine, but understand that now you've got to become Jewish. The second group was the Gnostics. And they said, you believe in Jesus? That's fine. Just wait until you get that special knowledge from God, then you'll be saved. And these two groups come from vastly different perspectives. Over here on the left, over here on the right, and the only thing they agree on is that Jesus isn't enough. There's more that you have to do in order to be saved. And so Paul opens this letter to Colossians by saying, make no mistake about it, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. You can make that statement, but Paul understands the problem. Whenever a person has an opinion about something, someone somewhere is going to say, what gives you the right to say that? What gives you the right to say that? Anybody ever had somebody say that to them? What gives you the right to say that? You ever said that to somebody else? What gives you the right to say that? I want to have a little bit of fun with this this morning, and so I'm going to ask you a few questions. What do you think is more beautiful architecture? The Sydney Opera House or the Knights Inn here in Salem? What do you think? Which one's, which one's better? Yeah, okay, you guys are choosing the Opera House. I think that's probably a, a solid choice. What's better music? The Liberty Mutual Insurance jingle? You know which one, you know which one I'm talking about? Liberty, 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 Liberty. Somebody got paid for that, by the way. The Liberty Mutual Insurance Jingle or Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Which one's better? I'm not, I didn't actually hear an answer. I'm, I'm, I want verbal affirmation that Chuck Berry comes out on top, right? Okay, just we need to make sure we're on that ground, okay? Otherwise, you've got to repent. All right, here's, uh, here's, the, here's the next one. What is more beautiful art? Rembrandt's Crucifixion or this manatee that I drew in third grade? Which one do you like better? Rembrandt's Crucifixion? Yeah, it's beautiful. World-renowned art is considered a masterpiece. What if we made it a little bit more difficult? It's, those are pretty easy, right? We're all in agreement. Maybe my mom likes the manatee better, but the rest of us are pretty well in agreement that these classic timeless pieces are better. What if we make it a little bit more difficult? What is more beautiful architecture, the Sydney Opera House or the Vienna Opera House? Suddenly we're going to start to get some different opinions here. One is modern. One is classic. Both of them are world-renowned. 
All of a sudden, we're going to start to get some different answers. What's a better song? Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry or Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers? Just to set the record straight, I'm going Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers. And if you don't know what those songs are, come see me after service. We're going to start some counseling, okay? What's better art, Rembrandt's Crucifixion or the roof of the Sistine Chapel? The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. We got a lot of different opinions here, don't we? But this isn't a heated debate. Nobody's going to get mad at each other. There's not going to be any arguments or shouting conversations that start. We're, we're all different people. We have different preferences, different opinions, no problem. And then there's my mom still holding on to that little manatee, right? But what happens when the decision isn't just a matter of preference? What happens when the decision we make has consequences associated with it? What, what if the question isn't, which one do you like better? What if the question is, should I move across the country and take this job, or should I stay here? What, what if the question is, should I invest my money in mutual funds or stocks? What if the question is, should I have this surgery? Or no? What if the question is, should I have this surgery because I might die on the operating table, but if I don't have the surgery, I'll definitely pass away within the year? See, if those are the questions I'm asking, I want to know about the person who's answering those questions. So if I'm asking those questions, I want to know about the person. How, how has it worked for you? Have you ever moved across the country to take a job? How's, how's your investment portfolio working over the last decade? Are you trending up or are you trending down? Where'd you get your MBA from? Or, or if you're my doctor, where'd you go to medical school? Were you top of your class, top 5% of your class? Where'd you do your residency? What surgeon are you recommending me to? Where'd she go to med school? How many times has she done this surgery? How many people have survived this surgery? See, when the consequences are real, the credentials matter. Should I believe that my faith in Jesus is enough? Or should I listen to the Gnostics or the Judaizers who tell me there's something more? So there's real consequences to that decision. Paul understands that. That's why starting in verse 15, he says, let me tell you about the guy I'm recommending you to. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Here's what Paul says. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation, for through him God created everything, everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him, by him. He existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of His church, which is His body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So He is first in everything, for God in all His fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through Him God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood, on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. 
Yet now He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. As a result, He has brought you into His own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before Him without a single fault. See, when the consequences are real, the credentials matter. Paul's telling us that Jesus has the right credentials. Jesus has the right credentials. And this morning, we're going to zoom in on one specific phrase that, that Paul uses in, in Jesus' curriculum vitae, if you will. And it's this phrase. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And you'll see that on your outline. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. We're going to zoom in on that phrase. And then as you meet in your groups this coming week, you'll have the opportunity to discuss more of what Paul says about Jesus. But this is where we're going to start. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. It's one of the most remarkable statements in the Bible. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know how God would act, look at Jesus. If you want to know what moves God to act, look at Jesus. If you want to know what breaks God's heart, look at Jesus. If you want to see the mercy of God, look at Jesus. If you want to see the strength of God, look at Jesus. If you want to see the love of God, look at Jesus. Because He's the visible image of the invisible God. I just want to show you what that looks like. So, on the eve of His crucifixion, Jesus invites all of His disciples over to the place they were staying where they were going to celebrate the Passover. And as He welcomes them in, Jesus does something wholly unexpected and completely remarkable. Instead of embracing them, He kneels before His disciples and He begins to wash their feet. And he, he washes off the mud and the dirt and the animal waste from the feet of his disciples, all 12 of them, including Judas Iscariot, who would in just a few hours betray him. This is the visible image of the invisible God. Where our actions don't determine God's love for us. See, the truth is, it's, it's, easy. it's easy to be hard on Judas. It's easy to be hard on Judas because we know that Jesus was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. But if I take an honest look at my life, the truth is I've betrayed Jesus for much less. Judas betrayed him for about a month's wages. I've betrayed him for much less. But Jesus' willingness to wash Judas' feet is a demonstration of His willingness to forgive us. And maybe you needed to hear that today. Maybe you needed to hear that today, that no matter what you've done, no matter who you've hurt, what you regret, or what keeps you up at night, you are not beyond the forgiveness of God. So as long as you have breath in your lungs... God stands ready to forgive you. Jesus, Jesus showed us that by washing Judas' feet. So after dinner, Jesus takes His disciples to a garden called Gethsemane. And while He's there, He begins to pray. 
He tells his disciples, he says, I want you guys to wait here. I want you to keep watching. I want you to pray. And then he goes a little bit further and he says to, to Peter, James, and John, he says, all right, you guys stay here. Keep watch and pray. And Jesus goes off just a little bit further and he begins to pray. He says, Father, if there's anything else that can be done, please take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. God, if there's anything else that can be done, let's do that. But not my will. Yours be done. Jesus knew what was coming. And he was honest enough to admit that he didn't want to do it. He knew it was going to be brutal and merciless. He knew that the treatment he was about to endure would be inhumane. But to save humanity, he went forward. This is the visible image of the invisible God. A willingness to do what needs to be done for someone else's sake. Of course, shortly after this, Jesus is arrested. The religious leaders take him, and, and for the rest of the night, Jesus finds himself on trials. For the rest of the night and into the next day, Jesus finds himself on trials, six of them in total. Three of the trials are religious, and then the last three are political. So the first three, the religious one. First before Annas, who is uh, one of the, the most well-respected religious leaders in the community. Then before Caiaphas, the high priest. Finally, before the entire Sanhedrin, the entire Jewish religious council of leadership. And as he stands before the Sanhedrin, these 70 men decide that they're going to play a game with Jesus to discern if he really is a prophet. So they decided they were going to play a game called Kalam Bismas. And what they would do is they would blindfold him. And so Jesus was blindfolded. And then the men of the council and their servants would take turns punching him in the face. And they would all cry out, Who hit you, prophet? And all 70 men and their servants would have an opportunity to strike Jesus on the face. And since Jesus said nothing, they determined he's a fraud. He's not a prophet. And they found him guilty of blasphemy. It's likely that after this beating, his face was so swollen that he wouldn't be recognizable to the people who knew him. And while the, the religious leaders would surely find this enjoyable, right, they, they love the opportunity to beat Jesus they knew that it wasn't going to be enough. Deep down inside them, they knew that it wasn't going to be enough. If they just released Jesus now, he wouldn't quit. He would go back to his followers and he would only be stronger than ever and they would find themselves in the same spot dealing with Jesus of Nazareth again and again and again. Deep down, they knew they had to have him killed. So they tell him, Pilate, this man is guilty of blasphemy and we want him killed. And so Pilate, Pilate begins his trial with Jesus. And it's a pretty easy one because Jesus doesn't say anything. And Pilate says, I, I find no fault in this man. So Pilate sends him off to Herod, who was kind of the, the local ruler. Herod's not much for what's going on here. He understands the political ramifications. 
and he doesn't know what to do, and so he sends him back to Pilate, Pilate being the, the, the governor of the whole area. Pilate's job, first and foremost, is to keep the peace. That's his job. He's, he's supposed to keep the peace. That's why the Roman government put him in the position that he's in. His job is to keep the peace, and he knows that if he doesn't give the crowd what they want in regard to Jesus, there is going to be a riot. Jesus has made everyone mad. And so in an attempt to appease the crowd, he says, all right, we are going to give you what you want. If you want some blood, we will give you blood. And he orders Jesus flogged. You've heard this before. You've heard this terminology before. Uh, But let me explain it a little bit to you because we usually go kind of light on the details here. It would be two Roman soldiers standing next to each other with the prisoner bent over a stump before them so the skin on his back would be tight. And each Roman soldier would have a cat of nine tails. It's a wooden-handled object with, with nine leather strips attached to it, and at the end of each leather strip would be a piece of wood or bone or rock or glass that was sharpened to a point. And what they would do is the one soldier would lay it across the top of the shoulder blade and rip down all the way to the opposite calf. And then the other soldier would start at the opposite shoulder blade and rip down to the opposite calf. This is a a beating so severe that the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that 60% of people who endured it didn't survive. That the beating was so severe that it was not uncommon for pieces of a person's spine to be visible. And Jesus, who created the heavens and the earth, who had legions of angels at his beck and call, silently endured that. This is the visible image of the invisible God. And so after he endures this beating, Jesus survives. By the way, I don't know what you think you know about Jesus. If this whole turn the other cheek mentality seems a little bit sissy for you, if you think I'm, I'm a manly man and Jesus just isn't up to that part, make no mistake about it, Jesus is a man. Because after he endures this beating that people didn't survive, the Roman soldiers hand him the 125-pound horizontal piece of the cross and tell him to walk. You see, they knew that the flogging wasn't going to be enough, and so he's sentenced to crucifixion during this time. And, and so Jesus carries this 125-pound cross. He can't carry it the whole way. Of course he can't. Shock, blood loss, his eyes are probably swollen shut. He hasn't had anything to eat or drink, and so he carries it until he physically can't. And then another person in the crowd takes up the cross for him, and they make their way to Golgotha. And when they arrive there, the cross is laid down, the horizontal piece, and they take nine-inch long nails and they drive them through Jesus' wrists. Not His hands. We see that as the common depiction. The, 
the bones in the palm of the hand wouldn't be strong enough to support the weight of hanging on a cross. So right here through the wrist is where those would have gone. And they laid Jesus there with all of the strength in the universe to say, this is not happening. And He silently endured. I cannot imagine the strength that it takes to suffer when you have the power not to suffer. So they nail Him and His hands to the cross and then they attach the vertical and the horizontal pieces together and they nail His feet to the cross. This is much more straightforward right through the heel of the foot. And then the entire cross is placed into a two-foot hole that was already there. And there He is. Beaten so badly He's unrecognizable, likely unable to see. Cut open so badly that His spine is visible, hanging by His extremities, waiting to die. And this is the visible image of the invisible God. Why do I say all this? Why do, I, why do I bring all this up? Because this is what Jesus endured so that we might be forgiven of our sins. This is what Jesus endured so that we might be forgiven of our sins. So the word endured is the one that's in blue up there. But on your outline, I want you to circle a different word. I want you to circle the word might. See, Jesus knew that His death on the cross would not guarantee forgiveness of sins for everyone. It would open the door for us to accept forgiveness. And Jesus knew that not everybody would appreciate what He had just done. He loved us enough that He wanted to give us might. That we might be forgiven of our sins. Here's how Paul says it in verse 21. You were His enemies. You were separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. As a result, He has brought you into His own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before Him without a single fault. Let me bring it all together. The Christians in Colossae, they're being told Jesus isn't enough. So Paul reminds them what Jesus did and he says, you tell me, is that enough? This is the guy I'm referring you to. He's not a spiritualist. He's not a shaman. He's not a yoga master. He's not a wise old man. He's not a philosopher. He's not a priest. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And he gave his life to pay for your sins. Paul saying your faith in Jesus is enough. Not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is and what He did. He's saying, I know the consequences are real and I know the credentials matter and I'm telling you, Jesus is the one to trust. Here's how Paul wraps up this recitation of Jesus' credentials. Verse 23, he says, you must continue to believe. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Paul knows that there's going to be people all around that try and convince them that their faith isn't enough. 
And he says, stand firm in the faith you have and the assurance you had when you first believed. And I know that there are going to be people around you that try to tell you that your faith isn't enough. And you're going to be a person that tries to tell you that your faith isn't enough. So when you're tempted to think that you're unworthy of salvation because you don't know enough, you don't know enough Bible, you don't know the songs well enough, or because you lost your temper, because you didn't get to Sunday school today, or because maybe one of your kids didn't get their teeth brushed and you didn't realize it until you were on your way to church. Because you're wearing the same thing you wore last week and you didn't realize it until somebody told you. Or because you've sinned. Because you just don't feel very much like a good person. When you're tempted to think that your faith isn't enough, don't believe it. Stop and remember what the visible image of the invisible God has done for you. He believed that you were enough. And that's it. Psalm 46.10 is a, it's a popular Bible verse. It, it, it says this. It says, be still and know that I am God. Hey, that's good advice. That's good advice. Be still and know that I am God. I think Paul might take it a step further, though. I think he might say, be still. And remember what God has done for you. See, the best way to remember what, what Jesus, the best way to remember that Jesus is enough is to remember what he's done. Because I don't know about you, I can't look at what Jesus has done and say there's more to do. I just can't do it. All of the things that Jesus endured for my sake, I can't look at that and say there's more to do. So as we begin to close today, I want to share an excerpt from Max Lucado. This is from his book, The Passion, the Pain, and the Promise. I want you to listen to this. Here's what Lucado writes. He says, as Jesus stepped into the garden, you were in his prayers. As Jesus looked into heaven, you were in his vision. As Jesus dreamed of the day when we will be where he is, he saw you there. His final prayer was about you. His final pain was for you. His final passion was you. He stepped into the garden and invites Peter, James, and John to come. And he tells them his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he begins to pray. Never has he felt so alone. What must be done, only he can do. An angel can't do it. No angel has the power to break open hell's gates. A man can't do it. No man has the purity to destroy sin's claim. No force on earth can face the force of evil and win except God. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus confesses. His humanity begged to be delivered from what his divinity could see. Jesus the carpenter implores. Jesus the man peers into the dark and begs, can't there be another way? Did he know the answer before he asked the question? Did his human heart hope his heavenly Father had found another way? We don't know. 
but we do know he asked to get out. He begged for an exit. We do know that there was a time when if he could have, he would have turned his back on the whole mess and gone away, but he couldn't. He couldn't because he saw you. Right there in the middle of a world which isn't fair, he saw you cast into the river of life in despair that you didn't request. He saw you betrayed by those you love. He saw you with a body that gets sick and a heart which grows weak. He saw you in your own garden of gnarled trees and sleeping friends. He saw you staring into the pit of your own failures in the mouth of your own grave. He saw you in your garden of Gethsemane and He didn't want you to be there alone. He wanted you to know that He had been there too. He knows what it's like to be plotted against. He knows what it's like to be confused. He knows what it's like to be torn between two desires. He knows what it's like to smell the stench of Satan. And perhaps most of all, he knows what it's like to beg God to change his mind and hear him simply but firmly say no. For that is what God says to Jesus. And Jesus accepts the answer. At some moment during the midnight hour, an angel of mercy comes over the weary body of this man in the garden. And as he stands, the anguish is gone from his eyes. His fist clenched no more. His heart will fight no more. The battle is won. See, you may have thought that it was won on Golgotha, but it was not. You may have thought that the sign of victory is the empty tomb. It is not. The final battle was won in Gethsemane. And the sign of conquest is Jesus at peace among the olive trees. For it was in the garden that He made His decision. He would rather go to hell for you than go to heaven without you. This is the visible image of the invisible God. So at the end of every sermon, we do an invitation song. And we're going to have one today as well, but I want to do it a little bit differently this week. Today I want our invitation song to be... I want it to be the most straightforward rendition of the visible image of the invisible God that I can find. And so I thought about it this week. And I settled on a song that I think depicts it perfectly. And uh, I, just want you, I just want you to hear these words. I'm going to say them because I don't sing. Just listen to these words. This is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. I don't know how many times I've heard that song, but this past week as I, as I thought about this song, something occurred to me that's never occurred to me before. Every time I've thought about that song, I've thought about little ones as kids, you know, babies. Atticus is a little one. Adeline is a little one. People who ride in car seats and have baby carriers, they, they're the little ones. But I realized something this week. I'm the little one. I'm weak, but praise God, Jesus is strong. Yes, He loves me. He proved it on the cross. And Today, the only thing we have to do is continue to believe that truth 
and stand firmly in it. Let's pray.